Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of the World of Wellness Center podcast. Today we have a special guest, Jason Doherty. I can't even tell you how fun this conversation was to have. This is the second conversation we've had together and you will not be disappointed with the wealth of knowledge that Jason brings to the health and wellness field. So Jason is a director of coaching and education at Synthesis Human Performance. He's got not only an undergraduate and master's degree in business, but he's got a second master's degree in kinesiology and sports conditioning. Um, He's got 10 plus years of experience as a leader in the health and human performance industry, and he coaches high performers, including youth to professional athletes, corporate executives, public figures, and women during all stages of pregnancy and postpartum. So he is very passionate about empowering every client with the knowledge, the skills, and abilities that they need to maximize their performance, reduce their injury, and achieve their goals in real life. And let me tell you, that just completely comes across in this episode. So I can't wait for you to have a listen into our conversation. And let's meet Jason. Well, thank you so much, Jason, for coming on the podcast. Why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners before we get going? Absolutely. So uh, my name is Jason Doherty. I am a certified strength coach. Um, I am very fortunate to work with a very diverse clientele uh, that ranges from the average Joe all the way up to elite professional athletes. Um, my expertise ranges from, uh, you know, return to play uh, or pre or post rehabilitation all the way up to maximizing elite performance and pretty much everything in between. Uh, and I'm just very fortunate to be doing a job that I absolutely love and have had the opportunity to work with some phenomenal people in the process. Cool. I, fitness is so fun because you get to see a wide range of people and you get to help them, you know, better themselves so they can live functionally in their own life and feel better and perform the way that they want to. How did you get into fitness yourself? Great question. So it all started uh, when I was a very young kid. You know, I started watching, obviously, professional sports on TV. Um, Specifically, Michael Jordan was a very big influence on me. Um, And I was immediately fascinated by, you know, specifically what he was able to do and like how he was able to dominate a basketball game and the things he was able to do on a court. I just became really fascinated by it. And obviously, developed a liking for basketball because of it. But then the deeper level was, as I was always, how do you train the body? How do you prepare the body to be able to do those things? And that was always a question that was in my head. You know, I started haphazardly lifting weights down my basement as every, you know, young male does at some point in their life, not really knowing what they're doing, just trying to move the the heaviest thing they possibly can for as many times as possible. And, you know, again, did that haphazardly. We fast forward a little bit Um, when it comes time to make the college decision and what to study, kind of looked around, had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, You know, looked at my dad as an example and saw that he was successful in business. So I originally decided that I was going to going to study business and uh, pursued my undergrad and then later my master's in business. And during that process, I uh, got involved with campus recreation at my university started out just kind of as a fitness attendant, just kind of roaming around, you know, the facility, making sure that people didn't kill themselves as they were trying to work out and got introduced to some exercise science people and really started to understand that, hey, there's a, there's a profession here. There's a career here. 
And so I finished my undergrad, um, left the university for a year, and then went back and got my second, ma- or, sorry, my master's in business. And then at that time, uh, Campus Recreation asked me to come back and they promoted me to the student manager in charge of fitness. So at that time, I really had a greater exposure to the faculty of the exercise science department. And they graciously invited me to basically audit any exercise science class that I wanted to audit in my free time of uh, getting my MBA. So I took them up on that offer and just was you know, absolutely fascinated by the science that, that you know, underpinned our, our body's ability to do what we do. And it just kind of morphed from there. Uh, I finished my MBA, but then I kind of realized that, you know, the business route wasn't strictly the direction I wanted to go. And I wanted to pursue exercise science and, and training and strength and conditioning as a, as a uh, career. And one of the chairs of the department, the exercise science department, he pointed me in the, in a direction. And he said, you know, I really think you should get your CSCS, your Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist certification. Had no idea what it was at the time. That's the best one you can get. Yeah, I said, (laughs) okay, uh, I'm willing to do it. Uh, I said, but what does that mean? And he said, well, you know, it goes a little bit above, you know, your personal training certification and the fact that kind of the baseline to train athletes. And it was kind of like instantly the buzzer went off in my head from you know, young me watching pro sports. And I was like, oh, wow, like I can, I can understand, you know, this will take me to really understand what it takes to be a pro athlete, because I knew personally, I had no ability to, you know, be a pro myself. And so I pursued it. And I, I went home, and I looked into it, I was researching everything. And I looked and it was the requirements were incredibly difficult. And I went back to the person who told me about it, And I said, sir, you know, with all due respect, I'm all about doing this and I'm going to do it. I said, but I have zero of the qualifications that are listed on on the website. And he said, trust me, I've heard about you in the classes. Uh, I think you can do it. So what should have taken about a year to a year and a half study period, I did in about three and a half months. Oh, my goodness. And and I eventually passed uh, the certification. First time I failed it by one point. Um. And then I went back, they had a required uh, six week uh, waiting period and I retook it and everything was great. So then I'm certified and I'm like, okay, well, their national conference is coming up in Vegas. And I was like, I better go and understand what I got myself into. (laughs) And there is where I met what I'm going to say is the most influential person in my career, um, a gentleman by Nick Winkleman and by the name of Nick Winkleman. And he was working at the time for a company that was known as Athletes Performance uh, and is now known as Exos. And I was just enthralled by this guy's passion for fitness, strength and conditioning. And so I got connected with Exos, did a bunch of education through them. And that is where that's what got me into the level of coaching, training uh, and educating that I am right now. Uh, because they really opened my eyes up to the depth of, you know, a lot of the things that we're going to speak about. So I I, want to go back just a second and ask you a question about when you were sitting and auditing these exercise science class, do you have like a something in mind that specifically pops out that you were like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like what about the human body was like what, besides like what it's able to do 
Is there something specific that you learned in these classes that was like mind blowing to you almost? Well, I think I think one of the one of the biggest things that was that was unique to um, you know the concept of training was just understanding um, periodization and understanding that the the stress and the stimulus that you apply to the body is directly related to the results that you're going to achieve. And I was just fascinated by being able to tweak all these different variables how you could change what the body was capable of. And I, that was one of my biggest things. I was like, wow, I just thought you kind of picked heavy crap up every once in a while and put it down again. And, you know, did that until you retired and, you know, you, you became better because of it. And, uh, you know, I, I was amazed by the granularity of how you can manipulate those variables to, to truly achieve the human potential. I'm glad that you mentioned the word periodization, because I think that's something that, well, let's actually talk about it a little bit because I think sure. there's, there's a couple of different ways that you can go about looking at periodization, right? So you can go about it in the sense of if you're strength training, specifically doing like a hypertrophy or strength-based workouts, you can load and deload and manipulate the variables with reps and sets and load, but there's also different types of exercises that you can do to get like results, like power stabilization and stuff like that. What do you, what do you typically do with your, um, students in that regard? That's a great question. And, you know, this kind of goes back to kind of the overarching theme of our, our conversation that led to, led to this recording. And the big thing is, is whether I'm dealing with the average person or, or I'm, I'm dealing with an athlete, I train everybody like an athlete, and that's a really um, core value of mine. And the reason being, if we look at an athlete, right, they're training because their body is their well-being and their body is their their ability to earn, right? Yeah. So fine-tuning how that human machine works is critical to their survival in, in their profession. And one of my big things with all my clientele is – helping everyone share that same appreciation that, look, we only have one body and we need to do what we can do to proactively allow it to reach its potential. So to go back to your question, my biggest thing with periodization is to make sure that it's individualized, right? Mm -hmm. And to make sure that I truly understand, okay, what are the variables for the person or the group that's in front of me, right? What are the demands that this person has to tra is training for to overcome to be sh be sure that their bot body is capable of doing right? And so one of the things that I'll kind of take a little bit of a sidestep here, you know, if we think about the difference between exercise and training, right? And this is a, this is a lot of times it's a term that's interchange interchangeably used with a lot of people, right? But in my mind, there's a very key distinction, right? Typically, if you think about exercise, right, we're thinking about a bout of physical activity, right? Yeah, that was going to say the key word right there, physical activity. Yeah, yeah. Which, is, which is very important for maintaining general health, right? But the key distinction is if we're just exercising, very rarely is there a relationship between workout one, workout two, and workout three, and or what you do in week one of a program of exercise and what happens in week four of a program of exercise, right? So there's not a whole lot of interweaving relationship when we're simply exercising for physical activity. However, 
you know, if we think about training, right, that's when the concept of periodization comes into play to where, like I said, first, we're going to understand the person, we're going to understand, you know, what are their physical demands, what are their physical capabilities, what are they, you know, from a mental standpoint, cognitively, how are they, what's their mindset like, uh, and then also related to that, what's their emotional state, how are they relating to all of this experience, right? And then, okay, what are their goals? What do we need them to be able to do? What are they currently able to do? And then how do we program to close that gap between what they're currently able to do and what they need and slash want to do? So this is where the, well, we talked about this when we talked before, but this is where that parallel of treating everybody treating themselves like an athlete, because when you're, when you're working with an athlete and you're saying like, this is where they are, this is what they need to do. And they need to perform to they're able to earn. And just the average person has, okay, what is their lifestyle? Like, what do they need to be able to do so that they can live a functionally independent injury-free lifestyle? Yes. I think, I think a key point there, um, is, is a mind sh- mindset shift, right? Like, People have an exercise mindset and, you know, and this is one of the first things that I do with every single client is I want them to understand their why. And what I mean by that is, you know, okay, why are we going down this path? Why do you want to accomplish what we're talking about? And unfortunately, um, you know, in today's society, and I'm going to try to avoid getting on a soapbox, but, you know, media and marketing puts all of these terms in front of people. And then that filters into, okay, well, I'm doing this, you know, for an aesthetic reason, I'm doing this to accomplish, you know, this or that, right. Which is fine. I'm, I'm not, I'm not uh, disagreeing or, or discarding any of that. However, if we, if we do our job as a coach and we go a little bit deeper, okay, but why is that important to you? Right. And when you deep down, you know, get somebody to really think about it nine times out of 10, there's some sort of performance goal in that person's life as to why they've seeked or sought the advice of a coach, right? Um, and that performance goal, depending on the person, right? It could be something as simple as someone who is middle-aged, right? Who wants to be able to be active with their children, grandchildren. Uh, it can be, you know, a high school athlete. But the thing is, that's really important is we're all human beings, right? And our human body, right? because of all of the work that's been done with research and anecdotal evidence, the human body, we can, we can allow it, we can help it to be durable, we can help it to do its best, or there's things that we can do that aren't going to allow that to happen. And it's important that we help people see that, okay, we understand that you want to be able to do these things, but there's a process and a system a systematic approach that's going to put you in the best place to maximize your ability, right? Reduce your risk for injury, and then also maximize your longevity and being able to do what you want slash need to do. And there's a key thing. Well, not a key thing that you said, but you know, I completely agree with you in the sense of, okay, there's a performance goal. I want to be able to get up and down the floor with my grandkids, or I want to be able to jump three feet for my performance in volleyball. But I think behind that even okay there's a performance but then there's also an emotional connection there too because if they don't have that if you're not getting that emotional connection you're not going to embrace the process right like in that in in 
asking yourself, okay, well, I want to have this performance goal of being able to get on the floor with my grandkids. And that would make me feel fulfilled in my life because I'm having a meaningful relationship. So then it kind of goes to then, okay, well, if I don't embrace the process, what in five, 10 years, what is my life going to look like? And if I do embrace, and it's probably going to get worse, right? It's not going to get any better if we're doing the same thing over and over. So in order to be vulnerable enough to say, okay, I need a coach and I need a process because if I keep going down this path, it's not going to be good. So I need to go. But if I do go down this path, I'm going to be those performance goals. I'm going to feel confident. I'm going to feel strong and fulfilled with my relationships. So it's kind of looking at both ways, like what's going to happen if I don't do this and what's going to happen if I do do this. Sure. And and that's, that's a, that's a very, very good point. And you know, and, and you know, I, I know we both look at this the same way. And that's, that's why I, I really encourage people to look at, you know, their, their goals, you know, look at it as, okay, here's your goal, but understand that setting the goal is only part of the process. It's only one piece of the process and how well you execute your journey to that goal is far more important than simply setting the goal, right? And understanding that there's multiple components. If we're trying to accomplish something to your point, right? There's a mindset piece, right? Nine times out of 10, there's going to be a a nutrition piece, right? That's going to actively play a huge role in that. There's going to be a movement piece, right? Like how, how are we programming your movement to make sure that things match, right? To make sure that everything that we do within your training experience is going to transfer and have maximal benefit to you outside of the training environment, right? So that's that's a transfer of training piece, right? And that that's going to kind of go back into that, you know, why is functional fitness important, which I'm sure we'll, we'll delve into. And then, you know, we got your mindset, we got your movement, we got your nutrition. And here's a piece that most people don't even think about. What's the recovery process from all the effort that you're putting into accomplishing what you want to accomplish. You know, the, the biggest misconception that I see with athletes included, everybody thinks that the benefit from what they're doing occurs when they're doing the work, right? And we know, and we've known for a while that actually when it comes to training, all your benefit from, from training comes from adequately recovering from that, right? And, you know, that's just so um, counter to what most people are told again, from, from media and, you know, just marketing and things like that. But, you know, the recovery piece from all the effort that you're putting into accomplishing something is incredibly important. So I'm curious as to what are some, what are some tools or techniques that you use with your clients to help them embrace that process? If they're kind of hesitant with it. Sure. And that's, that's a phenomenal question. And the easiest thing that I've done and this, this has worked across the board with everything I've worked, everybody I've worked with is going through the initial consultation process, right? Ensuring that we have an opportunity to have a conversation so that I can understand what's this person's perspective. Again, what's their why behind what they're trying to do, understand a lot of those pieces. Okay. Where are they at nutritionally? How do they perceive their movement capabilities? What does their recovery look like? You know, and these are all based on the questions that I'm asking. I'm, I'm gathering information the whole time. But then the most valuable tool that I've found over and over again 
is I take every single one of my clients through some variation of a movement screen, right? Because I want them to understand, okay, what is my body capable of? And wow, I didn't notice that this simple movement was that difficult for me. Or wow, I didn't notice that this was painful or that was painful. Or hey, I do this better than I thought I, I, I was able to do this, right? And nine times out of 10, they go through that. I don't have to say a word. I'll just say, hey, tell me how you felt during that movement process or movement screen, excuse me. What did you find to be the easiest? What did you find most difficult? Was any, did anything surprise you? And then all of a sudden, I'm able to relate back to them. Okay, well, you know how we did X in the movement screen. This is how it relates to what you told me you want to accomplish. This is how we're going to get you better at that. And then all of a sudden, they go, hey, that sounds pretty good, right? And I haven't sold them on anything. I let them feel and experience, again, where they are now. I, you know, it was pretty clear if they notice a deficit there, that there's something that needs to be improved to get to where they want to be. And then I provide a path to fill that gap. And that has been over and over again, the most beneficial thing, you know, that I, that I get people, um, you know, hyped up about the process. But then, you know, it's always about throughout the process, allowing people to be in a position to succeed, right? And recognizing where those successes occur and making sure that there's realistic expectations on their part, as well as my part, as we, as we move forward. Um, and, you know, the easiest way to do that is just continual and, um, you know, a two-way street in terms of communication and, and just continually steering the process together and building the relationship, right? And that kind of comes back to the emotional side of the equation that you had mentioned earlier, right? Letting them know that, you know, this is a relationship. Your process is now my process. And, you know, we're going we're gonna to make this happen. So do you, do you ever sit down with your clients outside from the workouts and kind of go through how, 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 how's our progress coming? What do we need to tweak? Or is it kind of like, do you do that in the midst of like, is it like, is there a separate thing that you do with that? Or is it kind of like when we're working out, we're kind of doing this at the same time? Great question. So, uh, I start every session, uh, number one, by doing a, doing a quick check-in with, with my client. Right. And that's as simple as how are you feeling today? Right. And, you know, that gives them an opportunity to kind of check into their body and they'll kind of let me know, hey, I'm a little sore here or, you know, this doesn't feel quite right. That doesn't feel quite right. Um, so that happens every session. But then usually about every three to four weeks, you know, I'll literally ask the person, how do you feel we're doing on your progress? Is there anything you want to do more of, less of or do differently? Right. And that's the question I ask. And then I shut up and I let them speak. Yeah. Right. And I just see what's their perception of of that chunk of time that we just went through. Right. Because I'm a big fan. And this, again, comes from Nick Winkleman, who I mentioned earlier. I'm a big fan of building context for my clients. Right. Context that they're familiar with. Yeah. And that's how I coach a lot. But then also, along with, you know, making sure that they have context of how everything that we do is is leading to their to their end goal or their desired outcome, I also want to give them a sense of autonomy and ownership in the process as well. And so that's why, you know, about every three to four weeks, I, I ask those questions. I, you know, 
what do you like? What do you don't like? Is there anything you want to do differently? And in your mind, are we, are we making progress toward where you want to go? Yeah. Well, that, that way they don't feel like we're just a jewel surgeon. <laughs> they are actually participating and not in, in, in their health and they're getting to make the decisions too. And I think that's really empowering for clients because sometimes you will get fitness or trainers and fitness instructors or trainers who are just like, nope, we're doing this. And a lot of times it's what they want to do. They're not actually taking into consideration what the client's function and needs are. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, ultimately like I don't operate under the misconception that I'm going to be with, with a client for the rest of their lives. Right. I'm very fortunate that I have a very high retention rate. And I've had people that have been with me for a long period of time. However, my ultimate goal is to empower them through education and give them the simple strategies to make able to make the, the decisions related to their own health that, you know, they can execute on their own and continue their progress, you know, when the time when I'm not, you know, in their ear the whole time occurs. Um, you know, Nick, again, going back to Nick, one of his, his big statements to me is, hey, your best session is when you don't have to say a word to your client because then you know you've lo- they've learned <laughs> what you've been coaching them, right? Um, and then you know that you can now progress them to, <laughs> you know, the next step in the process. Yeah. And that may be autonomy in, in some cases. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in and listening to this episode of the World of Wellness Center podcast with our special guest, Jason Doherty. If you are absolutely dreading the holiday season and worried about putting on a couple extra pounds, fear not. We've got a free guide called Strategies to Stay Trim Before Trimming the Holiday Turkey so that you can feel confident moving through the holidays and you don't even have to go grab those stretchy pants out of the closet. So head over to worldofwellness.center slash turkey and grab that free guide. Here we are right back of the episode with Jason Doherty. Let's talk about functional movement. Okay. <laughs> this, this is so fun. One of my, one of my favorite things is when a client comes to me and tells me, Megan, I was doing whatever I was painting and I was, I was cutting a piece of drywall and I felt myself going across my body with the knife. And I was like, Oh my gosh, this is just like the movement that we do with, um, Megan. So, or in the workouts, I just said my name, but it's fine. (laughs) So, so let's, let's talk about some of the, I mean, let's talk about like the basic movement patterns and then let's talk about how these things and like how they transfer into life. I, I sometimes we, yeah. and this is where you're saying keeping the context, right? So like yeah. when we talked the first time, I loved what you said when you're doing a deep squat of like, imagine you're sitting down on the lowest stool you can find. Yeah. 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 And, and so, yeah. So if we think about functional, functional fitness, right. Functional training, whatever the key is, you know, from a mindset standpoint, understanding that, Whatever you need to do in daily life, we need to put uh, items, movements, activities in your training that's going to prepare your body to have that capability and improve your body's capability to do those things. So we want to take, we want to make sure that everything in training is going to maximally transfer to to daily life activities, right? So when we look at that, right, there, there, the posture is incredibly important. 
the body position is incredibly important, and the load is incredibly important. And we want to try within reason, there's some expect, you know, uh, exceptions, but we want to try to make it as similar as possible so that we consider it practice for the brain and the body for, okay, we did this in training. We've done it for X amount of reps. You know, we've done it a ton of times. Okay. Now it's time to your point. Now it's time to, you know, paint that wall. Now it's time to move that bucket oh, wait, this is exactly the same as when I was doing X, Y exercise. Okay, moving this bucket is exactly the same as doing my deadlift. Okay, uh, when I have to bend over to pick up my golf ball out of, the, out of the pin and out of the hole, that's a single leg hip hinge, right? And when it comes down to it, our bodies have not very many movement patterns that we have to train, right? We've got upper body pulling, we've got upper body pushing, we've got lower body pushing, and we've got lower body pulling. And then we've got producing rotation and resisting rotation, right? So if we think about designing a training program, we want to train those patterns on two legs with two limbs, or with one limb. And we want to alter the load and alter the repetitions in order to give our body enough experience to say, I can do this confidently when a situation in life occurs that's similar to it. So I, I like what you said with, you know, we're training this on one leg and we're training this on two legs. Like you gave the example of, okay, we're golfing and I'm going to do a single leg hip hinge, but I can also do a hip hinge with two feet. But I think another good reason to train one leg is that say by happen happenstance an injury does happen then i know still how to do this same movement on one leg if i twist an ankle or if i like sprain a wrist or something like that so then your body still knows how to perform the movement and let's i want to kind of give some examples of what's a functional movement and what's not a functional movement so that you can that somebody can like exercises specifically so somebody listening goes well am i doing functional movement like how do i know you know Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm gonna. I'll give you a couple examples. Um, and by let's no start with means, ones that are not. Let, let's start with ones that are not functional movements. Sure. Um, and the, you know, there, there's, there may be some different points of view here, but I'm gonna yeah. give you a couple examples. Yeah. So, um, a non-functional movement, in my opinion, is gonna be something like a leg extension machine, right? Mm -hmm. Or a uh, leg press machine, mm -hmm. right? And the simple reason for that is, is the biomechanics that your body is undergoing when you're doing that exercise are not close enough to activities that you have to do in your daily life because our brain orchestrates and produces movement in terms of patterns, not by muscle groups, right? And the traditional thought process in terms of exercise comes from a bodybuilding background, which the goal is to sculpt the body to look the best it possibly can, not necessarily to function at its highest level, right? So in order to train most functionally and get the most out of it, we want to train those movement patterns versus muscle groups. Yeah. And it's how often are we actually sitting down in a chair, putting a load on our shins and lifting it up how often are we actually doing that and on the right. other hand like you said about a deadlift earlier like 
Have you ever went and helped somebody move a couch? Have you moved a table? Have you moved a chair? And in drawing, again, what you've said, drawing those correlations, but then I guess I answered the functional movement part for us, but, but yeah. How, how often are you doing what you're doing in real life? Like how often are we sitting in like, I don't mind bicep curls, but how often are we standing in one place and picking something up and moving it up and down? Sure. That can help build the strength, but like, why don't we do that? How, how many times are we doing single muscle movements throughout the day? And how many times throughout the day are we doing multi-joint multi-muscle group combining upper and lower body throughout the day? Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, in my opinion, in my experience, it's, it's far more you know, in the, on the movement pattern side of the equation. Now, is there a time and a place for some, some isolated muscle group stuff? Absolutely. I'm I'm not saying that that needs to be all thrown out, you know, and never used again, but again, it's important to understand how our brain operates, how our body operates and how we produce movement and our greatest understanding and kind of the paradigm shift from kind of the bodybuilding mentality of single muscle groups to a more movement pattern approach really comes from studying how do babies learn how to move, Mm. right? And we start to realize that babies have no concept of what muscle group is doing what. They just figure out how to to execute a movement pattern to accomplish something. They want to get over to the other side of the room. They figure out how to crawl. They want to, you know, they want to see what's, you know, higher than where they currently are. They figure out how to stand up. Then they figure out how to walk and jump and do all the things that, you know, develop over time. So I think that was one of the biggest, you know, helpings of shifting the paradigm is let's understand how babies learn how to move. And that's been a huge influence. So, you know, when you were talking about, okay, babies want to see what's above them. I think we can talk about this for a second of the body awareness component. Like, you know, some, somebody, I mean, a child, an infant is used to being on all four knees. They have to have some kind of awareness that there's this extra little skin under this part. I wonder if I can step up on it and learning their bodies that way. Um, I don't know. I guess, I guess kind of talk about how do you teach body awareness? How do you, how do you know if somebody is aware of their body or not aware of their body? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I think number one, from my perspective as the coach, it again comes, starts with the with the movement screening process. Like yeah. that's kind of my my first window into okay, how where how does this person move in space? How do they how do they perceive it? So I'm always kind of taking the mental notes there, um, and then I just I just observe right, and I, I just observe. I'm quiet, and I watch for a while how they choose to accomplish a task. And then I, I really try to focus on, okay, how can I give this person instruction? Again, that gives them context that they already understand, right? How, how can I frame this exercise into a movement that they already have to do in their daily life or have done a lot in the past? So now they can draw those correlations on their own and go, okay, this movement pattern is, is exactly when I do X. Um, and then they can develop with, my kind of steering the ship a little bit, they can get better at those movement patterns as I put them in better postures, whether that be from a tactile, you know, actually moving them around or from a, a verbal cue or a visual cue of a demonstration, just allowing them to make those small tweaks to that movement pattern to make them more efficient, right? And make it a better quality movement. Um, 
because again, this is a major principle in that, you know, we always want to look at quality first over quantity when it comes to movement, right? Because if movement quality is high, that means that we've got our bodies in a good aligned posture, a good position. We're minimizing the stress on the system, which is going to reduce our risk for injury over time and then maximize our longevity and being able to move in that, in that pattern. Um, so it's always thinking about how do we put the body in a position that's going to put the least amount of stress on it when we're doing certain things. So I'm curious as to what you would recommend. So if somebody doesn't have one, I think you and I both know the value of being with somebody so that you can give that tactile cue of like putting a finger in the shoulder blade of pinch those shoulder blades, keep your chest open, keep those shoulders down as you're doing this to get the efficiency of it. And I'm curious as to how your strategies have changed with doing that virtually. And then my other question to go along with that is how would somebody know that their movement quality is good if they don't have somebody like you or I watching them and telling them that it's not? Sure. So, so part one of your question, um, you know, obviously the pandemic shifted a great deal of how us as coaches and trainers needed to operate. Um, you know, again, I, I had to shift to basically a hundred percent verbal and a hundred percent visual when it comes to that. And that, that amplified the importance of me being able to understand what that person does on a daily basis so that with almost every movement, even the most minute movement that I wanted to change or the most minute aspect of the movement that I wanted to change, I needed to think about, okay, how can I give this person a context to be able to feel the difference between what they were doing and what I need them to do? Um, I think that's where, like with you're saying with verbal cues too, if I, I've seen clients who tend to just like want to go through the motions and like get, get the exercise done. I think that's where a real benefit of, you know, saying, okay, I want you to feel this in your lap, hold this until you feel it fire. Because I've seen clients will just like pull as fast as they can. I'm like, well, we're not even getting the contraction in the lap. Basically the biceps just doing the work. So we need to take it and slow it down and make sure that we're getting everything in the right position because this is the muscle that it's supposed to be working. Yeah. Because, you know, related to that, um, you know, everybody, as we go through life, we develop movement compensations, right? Yeah. No matter, you know, it just happens because of a result of previous injury result of how we were taught to move. Uh, and you know, just a couple different variables. And it's really important that we try to keep that quality high because as those movement compensations occur, again, we're putting unnecessary wear on the system. So if we can get the details right, we can get to your point, we can get the right muscles doing the right job and we can get the right joints moving at the right time, right? We're, we're allowing us to have longevity in our body's ability to function. And that's super, super important. Like that's why, you know, movement is not the same as quality movement. And, you know, this is one of my other big things and you know, I got, you know, myriad of notes, but this is really important. And like exhaustion does not equal effectiveness. And that's, that's something that's been beaten into people's heads again, because of marketing and because of various different things, but exhaustion leads to problems. It doesn't lead to 
the results that you want. And, you know, more is not always better. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny, even you saying that it makes me think sometimes when I take three days rest, I actually like my body feels better. And even with, you know, resting is where the body repairs itself. So all the work that I've done with cardio or strength training, like if, if you're exhausting yourself and not letting your body rest, your body's not going to make the adaptations and that's going to mess with the, the hormones. And then you're not even going to lose weight. You could be doing exercise all you want, but if you're not getting the proper rest and letting the body repair itself, you might be exercising six days a week, but not seeing any results because you're not getting, you're not letting the body get the downtime to recover. So my point in saying that is that sometimes if I take a couple of days off, I feel fitter. I feel stronger. You know, have you ever yeah. experienced that with people? Yeah. So again, um, you know, if we go back to, you know, everybody's an athlete, right? Yeah. You think, you think about, um, and th this can be applied in a very, you know, large spectrum of populations, but think about a pro athlete, right? They have periods, they have a competition se uh, season, they have a preseason, they have a postseason, and they have an off season, right? During their off season, very rarely are they doing anything that is related to their sport, right? They might be doing a little bit of cross training, but they're taking a break. Yeah. And from, from a uh, average person standpoint, we don't do enough of that. And we, we undervalue the concept of recovery and also the concept of switching things up and burying the stresses and the stimulus that we're putting, putting under, putting ourselves under. Um, and again, that's, that's again, why we want to really think about everybody as an athlete and the principles that we know from training athletes apply to everybody. And recovery is one of the biggest things that gets overlooked you know, by the average person. Oh, and then I also think, well, two things, one to continue with what you're saying. Like, I know that LeBron James has a two hour massage after his games. Like that is, that is recovery. Right. And then I'm sure Absolutely. that they make sure that they're getting seven to eight hours of sleep or even more than that. Probably if you're training very hard, you probably need more exercise. But I think sometimes we, overlook it saying I'm too busy or I don't have time to, I just need to do my workout and get going with my day. Not actually thinking about, okay, well, if I actually do spend 30 minutes at the end of my day while I'm watching TV to stretch, that that's going to help me continue my performance and continue to make progress rather than saying, I don't have time for that. And I just want to relax. I think there's a difference between rest act, active rest and then also relaxing you know i think people think about resting as like hey i'm just gonna lay on the couch all day and put my feet up but like not active recovery in the sense of like okay i need to stretch i need to make sure that i'm putting the right fuel in my body i need to make sure that i'm sleeping enough and and creating like a like a balance in their um in their day so i i kind of want to talk about that in the with your uh sustaining the movement, right? So if, if we're constantly moving and yeah. we don't rest, it's not yeah. going to be sustainable. Yeah. And, and, and that's the thing, um, you know, and, and I'll try to give an example here. Um, it's going to have to be a general example, but to your point, I have two, two members of team USA in different sports, right? And then I have a few very active um, general population women as well. Okay. 
Team USA members have a limited time and they say, hey, Jason, I didn't get all the way through my lift today, got through my work, uh, got through my warm up. I took a little extra time because I felt like I needed to do X, Y, Z for my body to be ready. Right. So that pro athlete, they prioritize their warm up versus our typical recreational athlete or our, our, our average person. Oh, Jason, I skipped my warm up, uh, but I got my entire lift in. Right. The thing is, again, paradigm shift, the athlete realizes the, the warm-up is probably more important to them than getting an extra set of a loaded pattern. And, you know, again, that's, that, those are the type of lessons that I want the, the general everybody to, you know, really understand that, yes, chances are you probably want to move like an athlete. You probably want to look like most athletes when it comes down to it but we're not doing enough for the average person to take the lessons that we learn from athletes to allow them to train like an athlete. Well, so let's kind of just, why don't we talk about a little bit why the warm up is so important? Because I, I, I've seen time and time again that with even my students that it's, it's like, let's just rush through it and get to it. Let's. Yeah. So, I mean, very simply um, it's, it's should be, getting the body ready to rock, right? So preparing the body for what's about to come and, and giving it an opportunity to practice that in an, in, a, in, a, in an environment that's safe and allows for errors to occur so that when we are, we are loading things or making things more challenging and complex, the brain has already had a solid rehearsal. The, the, the tissues are warm, right? All the endorphins are starting to fire up a little bit. We're getting more alert cognitively. And so it's, it's, a, it's a solid rehearsal to prepare the body to have a better workout and to, to reap greater benefits from the actual lift or the actual conditioning session that they're about to do. I, I like what you said. That gave me a visual of if when we do make mistakes, we're giving it room for an error to occur. So if we're doing a loaded squat, if my quads and my hamstrings aren't loosened up and I accidentally kind of roll my knee in that my body's going to have the suppleness and the flexibility to let that happen and not cause injury for me to notice it and correct it without hindering my progress or hindering the rest of my workout. Yeah. I mean, if we put, if we put a good, you know, five to six movement dynamic warm up together, right. We're going to incorporate whatever our primary loaded patterns are for that workout in that. Yeah. And so, yeah, to your point that some of those errors can occur, but because it's your body weight, you're not going to blow something out. If something goes a little off, what's going to happen is, is you're going to feel, Whoa, that didn't feel right. Quite right. And then, you know, if somebody like you or I are watching it, we're going to know why that happened. And we're going to say, Hey, pay attention to X, Y, Z on your next couple reps of that, of that warm up activity, they do that. Now they feel the difference they've learned. Okay. This is what I need to do for that not to happen. And that now when they go under a loaded situation or a more complex or challenging situation, they've got a context that allows them to move more safely. So let's, um, I kind of want to dive into this a little bit. I want to talk about stress a little bit. And then I also want to talk about being proactive with our health. Okay. Um, okay. so Absolutely. let's talk about stress first. 
Okay, so so stress is uh, one of my favorite topics to talk about. So you might have to tell me to shut up if we get too deep into it. So that's that's morning number one. Okay. So the most important thing uh, when it comes to stress is for us to realize, I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're the most elite athlete on the planet or you're just getting started with exercise. Our body has one bucket for stress. Okay. Doesn't matter whether it's intended to be good stress or it's bad stress. Our body has one bucket for stress. Okay. And if that bucket overloads, bad stuff happens, right? So it's important to realize no matter what the intention is for exercise or training, it is still stress that is going to fill that bucket. And that's, that's uh, going back to one of our earlier uh, concepts. That's why managing periodization and having a plan and a process to manage stress is incredibly important and taking into account, okay, this is what we have planned for your training session today. But what's the other 22 to 23 hours of your day look like? Okay. How is your sleep? Are you constantly running around with the kids? You know, are you an athlete? Did you have a travel day? You know, are you sick? All these different things. This, these are all going to affect how the body a responds to the workout, but how the body responds to the stress that it's under. And it's our job as coaches, as trainers to manage that stress and have an awareness of what all the variables are that are going to affect the stress of that person in the short term in that session, during that week, during that month, during that year, and so on, right? So it's really important to not silo training and say, training is training and life is life. They are very incredibly intermingled. And it's important when we think about stress that we think about, okay, this is a piece that can be very positive 90% of the time. But if we don't manage training stress in in accordance with the rest of our stress, very bad things can happen. Well, and I think this is where uh, awareness comes into play because stress, stress retards our ability to process carbon dioxide. So if we're constantly stressed and then constantly working, we're not, we're going to feel like we're out of breath in five minutes because we are just, our system is taxed. Like you're saying that that bucket's full. And then, um, the, the other thing with that is being aware of our bodies and learning to kind of check in with ourselves of like, okay, I'm feeling really stressed. My body is achy. Do I actually, is a high intensity workout what I need today? Or do I need to do more of a restorative, what Paul check calls of working in where it's, you know, a little bit of a lower intensity, or maybe it's even a different type of movement to let our body reduce the stress. Because if, I mean, exercise is a form of stress and if we're, and it does pump adrenaline into our body because our body's like, Oh, I, I got to do this. I got to get this. So if we're constantly having adrenaline in the off or in the rest of the 24 hour, 23 hours, and here our body's never getting that rest and digest getting into the parasympathetic nervous system. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, it's, it's important to, to really look at, and this uh, simple equation to, to sum up everything that you just said brilliantly, um, a simple equation, cause I'm a simple kind of guy. Um, you know, work plus rest equals success, right? Mm. And that's that's something that is super simple. But again, you know, the second half of the equation gets gets cut off and mangled and, and misinterpreted. Um, 
And to, to one of your points earlier that I think is really important, right? When we say rest, we're not always saying that you got to be sitting on the couch doing absolutely nothing comatose for two days. That's not what we're saying. There's plenty of ways that you can manipulate how much stress you're putting yourself under and still be able to move, still be able to be active. Um, you know, the term that you use, which is incredibly you know, applicable is, is your active recovery strategies, right? Um, you know, okay, you want to get some cardio in, that's fine. You're going to go lower intensity and you're going to do, do a flush ride on the bike versus, you know, trying to get, you know, 10 miles done in record time, right? right. So um, movement is always possible and there's always ways that you can move and manipulate and put less stress on your body and allow recovery to occur. Well, I, I also, I like um, thinking about, okay, with the, what we're putting the stress on our bodies, I think it's important to take a step back and also look at what we're putting in our brains, because if we're constantly inundating ourselves with social media notifications or what we're watching causes a stress response. And if we're constantly in our email box, like these are all stresses. Like we might think that like we're being productive or like if I'm laying on the couch, it's fine because I'm relaxing. But what you're putting in your brain is also affecting your body and your hormones and your stress. Incredible point. And right. So like the basic of the, the basic concept of stress, right, is stimulus, response to stimulus, recover from stimulus. And what you just said was brilliant because, you know, a stimulus, if you get an email and you, you know, you might be sitting on the couch, you know, physically recovering, but you get an email from somebody that ramps you up and, and gets you, gets you angry. Right now, guess what? Now your stress is up and you're not recovering anymore. Yeah. You're, Even in the you body, know, your body, that those, yeah. That, that, yeah, you're, yeah. You're going to physically tense up, you know, all those things that, you know, excuse my language, but when you get pissed off, you know, all of those responses are going to have an emotional, a cognitive and a physical effect. Um, it's different than if you're going to run a half marathon, but it still needs to be accounted for. Right. Because again, stress is stress. Have you, I've done this. I just kind of want to share it to help other people get the awareness, but there's times where I like am very intentional about, okay, I'm not going to have my phone. I'm not going to check my email. I'm not going to go on social media to then almost be like, picking up my phone and like, do I, do I, no, I don't need to, I don't need anything on here. You know? So I think it's being very intentional about let's shut off the notifications. Do not disturb, turn your phone off, put it in a different room and really be with yourself and actually see what's coming up. And a lot of times people don't even know how to relax because those are these, and I, let me say rest also, not just relax, but they don't know yeah. how to take off or take out these stimuluses because we're addicted to that stress and dopamine that we get from notifications coming in. Yeah. So I, I agree a hundred percent and, you know, I'll be a hundred percent honest with this as well. Like I don't do what you, uh, what you suggest as much as I should, I'll be the first one, first one to say that, um, you know, and especially since the, since the pandemic and everything, it's kind of turned into, you know, a a 24 hour a day world now, right? Where um, I don't mind operating in that way. But, you know, to your point, like, I have to be very intentional and say, okay, uh, okay, we're going out to dinner. Guess what? I'm not taking my I'm not I'm not taking my phone. I'm actively telling myself I'm intentionally not taking my phone with me. Yeah. Um, 
or I have I have it set on my phone if it's turned upside down with the screen with the screen face down, it automatically doesn't do any like it automatically silences everything. So I'll literally uh, I'll make sure that I turn it upside down, you know, multiple times throughout the day. Like I'll do three or four times where I'll be like, okay, turn my phone upside down, and it's going to be at least twenty minutes before I pick it up. Well, and then into that point as well, if we're constantly distracting ourselves and putting this stress response in our head, like what are we focusing on? Because what we're focusing on is what we deem most important. And if we're giving our energy to something, we're telling ourselves that that's more valuable. So what's more valuable? Are you resting and actually taking the stress out so that you can live better in your body and in your life? Or are you saying that when you're out to dinner, that my phone is more important than my family members that I'm trying to connect with? So that whole concept of where attention goes, energy flows. And do you, do you want these, you know, things that aren't real in front of us right now all the time to be your priority in life. And we can correlate through the movement as well too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, I had this kind of noted, you know, another place in the notes and I mentioned it briefly earlier, but there's a a great book by James Clear, uh, which is called Atomic Habits, right? Which is an absolute tremendous book. And I think it's, it, it, you know, really dives into, you know, what you were just talking about in terms of really putting yourself in a position to focus your attention in the right areas and to build going back to the system thought process of, okay, how do we put ourselves in a, in a position to make a change uh, most successfully and sustainably? Um, and one of the things that I've found with a lot of the, and this, again, tying back to everybody's an athlete, and this is one of the lessons that I wish the average person would learn from athletes one of the best ways that I've heard from multiple athletes at multiple levels across multiple sports, one of the best ways that they use to minimize their, their stress is through routine. Right. And that just goes down to a systematic approach to building positive habits. Love that. So let's, um, let's talk about kind of using that systematic approach and also tying that in with being proactive with our health. Sure. Um, so, I mean, I think the most important thing is when it comes to proactive health, take ownership of your body, right? Take ownership of your health, right? Um, be mindful of what's the approach that's being advocated to me to deal with my health. And what I mean with that is let's think about a causal approach. If there's an issue, versus a symptomatic approach to, to an issue, right? So I'll give you an example for that. Our, our healthcare system, unfortunately, the overwhelming majority of the time is based on a systematic approach to treatment, right? System we, or symptom? Symptom, sorry, I keep saying yeah. system. Thank I, yeah. Symptom, thank you. Symptom, yeah. symptom. Uh, a symptomatic approach to treatment. And that is, okay, where's the symptom showing up? Oh, my knee hurts. Okay. We're going to treat the heck out of the knee and make the knee feel better. Whereas the causal approach knows where the symptom shows up is the overwhelming majority of the time, not where the problem is. Right? So we want to really understand how does our body work? What approach is being taken to help keep it in a positive direction and healthy? And the people that we are choosing to help us on that path, 
how do we choose the right person? Because that's incredibly important, right? And an example of that that I like to use, right, is let's say you're, again, we'll use your knee because it's simple. Knee starts to bother you, right? The traditional thought process is, oh, I need to go knee, to an ortho. Knee. I need to go to an ortho yeah. to get my my knee worked on. And I tell this to every single one of my clients when they tell me something hurts. I say, okay, if I take away all of your soft tissue, I take away all your muscles, I take away all your ligaments, all your soft tissue. What can your skeleton do? The answer is nothing, right? You're a pile of bones on the ground if you don't have your soft tissue element. You, you, you can't move, right? Yeah. There's no muscle action that can occur without soft tissue. But yet our first point of contact 99% of the time for most people, if something hurts, we go to an orthopedic doctor. What does ortho, what does the, what does the prefix ortho mean? bone, right? Yeah. So we're going, we're going to somebody that deals with bones when the overwhelming majority of the time, a soft tissue tissue approach from a PT, from a Cairo, from a uh, massage therapist is likely going to be able to create a positive effect to change how the joint is moving or how the bone is moving to help address the issue. And then we apply that into our world, whether it be strength and conditioning or training, we teach you how to move more effectively. So now those tissues are positively moving a bone or a joint in a better direction. Yeah. And one of the things that I've learned that I love about if your knee hurts, okay, well, what's going on above and below? Because you have all those ligaments and muscles that attach in the knee and the hamstring yep. and the calf. And even in the front of the leg too, I, I was just, you know, we don't, some of the times we just discard these tiny muscles, but these tiny muscles have a big impact on our life and the body works like a chain. So if my knee hurts, maybe it's something on my hip, maybe my hip is too weak or maybe it's too tight and it needs to be strengthened or, you know, we need to work on it. There's a knot there. So I think not just automatically going, okay, my knee hurts. It's my knee, but okay, well, where else does it hurt? Where else am I feeling stiffness and tightness? And I think that's where body awareness comes in and knowledge, just like with you shared with us of like, our bones can't do anything. It's probably something to do with the muscles. And even that's when, if we get a pinched nerve, a lot of the times it's because the muscles in the glutes or muscles in the hamstrings are tight and pulling on everything out of whack. So then that goes, Ooh, I'm not in the right spot. So it tenses up and causes, um, pain. And I love this. I forget where I learned this, but, um, I remember the first time it was with Brian McKenzie pain is nature's way of telling us that something isn't quite right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, along those same lines, right. It's important to understand pain is simply your body's warning system, right? Yeah. It is, it is not inherently negative. It is not, you know, positive. It's a warning system to your point to say, Hey, something isn't right. Yeah. Right. And again, I'm going to go on a little bit of a side note here and I'll, I'll, you know, kind of swerve, swerve back. But that's why, you know, if we look at all the NSAIDs and all of the, the pain relievers and stuff that people are taking, right. Let's be clear. They're not solving a problem. They are alleviating a symptom. Okay. Let's go a little bit deeper on that. They're alleviating a sy symptom of discomfort or pain, but they're also turning the body's warning system off 
that something isn't quite right. So now you're allowing yourself to do something that may be detrimental to your overall health and ability to function without the warning that this is occurring, right? You're masking the symptom rather than getting to the root of the actual problem. Precisely. Precisely. That's absolutely it. Um, Yeah. So, you know, and to go back to the concept of, of looking above and below, you know, using the knee, right. The, the analogy I always use or the, the statement I always make with people when they tell me their knee hurts, I say, look, your knee is simply a hinge. That's a hostage between what happens at your, at your hip and what happens at your ankle, right. Yeah. Your knee won't inherently go bad on its own. It just, yeah. It's a hinge. It just won't. So going a little bit deeper and kind of relating it back to what we do in our training, right. If we're somebody that sits at a desk for eight hours a day, right, we all know the postures that are going to result from that, right? We're going to get a little bit of forward head posture. We're going to get the rounded shoulders. We're probably going to get a little bit of a rounded lower back. Hip flexors are going to become tight. Glutes are going to shut off and, you know, right on down the chain, right? Right. But yet the majority of the training practices for most people right? If we walk into our typical commercial gym, what's the, what's the most we see other than cardio equipment? We see seated machines, right? Okay. So how is sitting more going to help us alleviate the issues that are being caused by sitting too much? Yeah. So to simplify that even more, the thing I say is whatever positions you're in most one of our goals during training is to train the opposite of those positions. And that goes for athletes, that goes for average people, that goes for my pregnancy clientele, that goes for everybody, right? So if you're in a specific position or a selection of positions for a long period of time, one of my jobs as your coach and one of your priorities as a participant, we need to figure out ways to train the opposite position that you're in so that we can balance your body's ability to not get stuck in a specific spot and, and reap negative benefits because being in that position too much. Yeah. And this is, this is also why two reasons. One, I don't hate it, but I try to minimize it and just do it for what I need. I don't like doing too many pushing with my upper body because I'm just making my neck muscles tighter, my pec muscles tighter when I'm already sitting and those are getting tight from being in a hunch over position. And this is also why when we're exercising, I don't know, I'm sure you do, but kind of using that two to one approach for like every one anterior or your front of your body exercise do two posterior because if you're I mean most of us sit like let's be real there's there's not a lot of people who are incredibly active throughout their day so making sure that we're training the back more to open us up and make sure that we can keep our posture at rack is going to be more beneficial than trying to you know power yeah. through make a bigger chest yeah and, it, and it's 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 allowing people to understand those relationships, right, of how everything's related. And, you know, to go back to the original point of the segment of the conversation, there are very simple strategies we can take to be proactive in addressing some of the things that, that are deemed as common or normal as we get older, right? And, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't think enough of those things are being um, being promoted. Um, there's a, there's a tremendous article out there 
um, by a good friend of mine, Eric Cressy, which is uh, 10 ways to remain athletic as we age. Hmm. And I think it's a tremendous um, kind of summary of what, you know, what things are important for us to, to think about, you know, allowing our bodies to self-manage and regulate the stress that we're under. Right. And one of the big things related to that, as we get older, there's this misconception that, you know, our training needs to get lighter and slower. Right. And this is another one of my kind of big areas of, of loving to talk about. And it's like, that's not the case, right? Like, yes, we will lose strength as we age. Like there's a big deal that's made in the media. Like, yeah, you're going to lose a lot of strength as we age that occurs, right? There's no doubt about it, but it's to a much smaller degree than what most people think. What's important though, is we lose the ability to produce power, right? Which oversimplified definition is the ability to express your strength rapidly, right? And that, when I say that, I'm not just talking about, you know, doing hand cleans when you're 65. What that means is if you can express strength rapidly, you can get your foot out in front of you fast enough. If you're about to fall and you can stabilize yourself on a single leg, have enough for, force and strength to drive yourself out of that compromising position and not fall on your face. Yeah. And so, I just ahead. thought of the example of like trying to get up out of your chair fast because somebody felt like being uh, able to explode up and stand up. Yeah. yeah simple. Right. And, you know, I, I, I've trained people all the way up to the age of 85, right? So, I mean, I, I've worked with pretty much every age group you can imagine. And every single one of them, I will have them doing something explosive in every single workout, right? There's, there's regressions and progressions for everything, but there, there always needs to be a stimulus of you know, let's put some serious strength into this equation. Let's challenge your ability to do something and let's build some strength, but then let's allow you to express that strength with some speed, right? Like let's, let's make you move fast. Let's make you move in multiple planes, right? Let's not just think about forward and back. Let's think about left, right? Let's think about diagonals because all these things are going to happen in some degree in our lives and we need to be prepared for them. I think it's important when we're talking about gaining strength and also being able to express that strength with power that it doesn't matter how old you are, that you can still gain that strength. Because I've seen people who are 40 or 50 and go, well, I'm old. I'm not going to be able to do that. But the truth is, yes, you can. Like I have one client that comes to my mind. He came to me, he was 59 and now he's, you know, he's 50 pounds down and stronger than he's ever been with more muscle than he's ever had. So I think it's important that people know that if you do embrace this process, even at no matter age, you can still gain the strength in the figure and the function that you like. You just have to practice at it. Yeah. I mean, to your point, um, you know, there's going to be some hormonal effects with age, right? And that is going to affect certain things. Yeah. Fine. Understood. Yeah. Completely agree. However, to your phenomenal point, if you successfully apply the right amount of stimulus intelligently, you can not only mitigate the effects of aging, but you can absolutely still improve. There is absolutely no question in my mind based on all that I know and all that I've experienced that continued improvement is possible at any age. Yeah. Right. 
and com- continued improvement. Yeah, it may be maintaining what you've had. Congratulations. That's still an improvement what, versus you not doing what you're doing. I mean, I have trained, I've trained two 76-year-olds, one male, one female, unrelated. Okay. The male was still, he, I trained him at a golf um, facility. He was consistently hitting the ball over 300 yards. Wow. At 76 years old. Okay. You're going to tell me that he's not powerful. (laughs) Uh, You got to be pretty powerful to hit the ball 300 yards at any age, let alone at 76 years old. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, like I said, I'm always going to have some level of plyometrics, some sort of explosive, some sort of power production element in every single person I trains program. Now, the, this is not to be confused that movement quality and exercise technique is maintained as speed and explosiveness is increased. Yeah. Oh, there's no point in doing it if you're not doing it properly, because that's what well, comes back to the functional movement. And the whole point of exercising is to be able to do things better without getting injured. Yep. Yep. And that's that in- injury reduction piece. That's, that's really the biggest thing. And I, I, I talk about this too you know, athletes and others alike for an athlete, you think about, I always, when they always whine at me, if I make them do corrective stuff, right. I say, okay, what's an extra year worth for you? Oh, $10 million. Okay. You want to make another $10 million? Let's, let's make sure we're doing our corrective stuff. We're moving the best we can. Yeah. (laughs) The average person, it's almost even more important, right? Because it's like, oh, Hey, what's an extra year of you being able to do what you want to do with your grandkids. Oh, what's an extra year of you being able to play golf without having to get your knee replaced and you being off the course for six months. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like these are all the same things. Like you, you've, you've got to do the things that put your body in a position for success. Yeah. And I, (laughs) this just reminds me of yesterday, yesterday at the end of my group training session, I was doing some posture work with them. And I was like, I know this is boring. Don't get mad. I'm like, this is good for you though. Trust me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah and that, that's go ahead sorry that's an excellent strategy that i use a lot too like if yeah. you know that some of the stuff they need to do that they would probably rather watch the grass grow than do it yeah. making those disclaimers and letting them know like look i understand that this is you know this is not the most exciting thing in the world but here's why it's important to you and here's how it's going to help you um you know i think it helps drive buy-in on some of those things yeah. One of the things that I like to do, you know, with some of those kind of corrective strategies or some of those more uh, mundane, you know, postural work and things like that is I like to introduce them to my clients and then I like to give them to them randomly as what I call movement snacks. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we'll, I'll always use their rest periods to be doing something. There's never like we actually ran a stopwatch one time with um, one of my um recreational athletes right and her session was an hour and 10 minutes right her actual rest time where she was not working on mobility stability posture or something was a minute and a half yeah right so number one i always use use rest times from primary lifts and activities to work on recovery yeah little active recovery action and then the second piece is I, I love to do this. I don't know how they like it, but I'll always shoot a quick text every once in a while. Usually it's about once a week and I'll say, Hey, here's a quick movement snack for you. 
here, do 10 of these, you know, on each side and, or, you know, whatever, right. Or here's these three movements. Here's what I want you to do. If it takes you more than 17 or seven minutes, you're, you're doing too, you're doing too much. Um, so, you know, kind of putting them in different areas where it's like, okay, I know these are good for me. It's not taking anything away from, you know, what I deem is important. So, all right, I'll throw a coach a bone, I'll do it. And, and then they start to buy in because they start to see how it all interrelates and helps them with what they deem is important. Well, this has been a incredible conversation. How can people learn more about you? Uh, so social media is, I'm trying to get better at it, but that's probably where I'm most visual, visual, uh, or visible, I should say. Um, so, uh, Instagram is coach Jason D and then I'm on Facebook. Uh, I believe my handle there is jdoc 50. And those are probably the two main places. Uh, obviously anybody can email me if they'd like, um, coach Jason D 23 at gmail.com is a good way to get to me. Um, that's pretty much it. Cool. Well, thank you for coming on. We're going to have to do this again. Cause I feel like you and I could just keep talking about a million different things related to movement exercise. <laughs> well, I, uh, Megan, as you know, this is kind of round two of our long conversation. Yeah. The yeah. first one, uh, your audience didn't get the get the privilege of talking to or listening to, excuse me. But um, you know, this was great, and I hope that the uh, that the audience uh, enjoys it as much as I enjoy having the conversation with you. And I'm more than happy to come on anytime you'd like and talk about anything that uh, you think would be helpful. Cool. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the World of Wellness Center podcast. It was a great conversation and look forward to the next one here with Jason. So if you haven't yet, head over to worldofwellness.center slash turkey to grab your free guide, Strategies to Stay Trim Before Trimming the Turkey, and then check out those show notes to learn more about Jason. If you wouldn't mind sending this episode to a friend who might learn something from it and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to this podcast. And let's get fit, feel good, and have fun together so we can spend more time doing the things we love. Bye for now. We'll see you next week.